Hey everyone, welcome to episode number four of season two of Musicians for Mental Health. On this podcast, we speak with musicians about mental health openly and honestly without the veil of lyrics. We are not mental health professionals, we are not licensed therapists or counselors, we are people that have had our own personal experiences with mental health and want to shed light on these topics. On this episode, I had the incredible opportunity to speak with Anastasia Elliott. Um, If you're not familiar with her, we're most likely having her on the other podcast soon, but um, she is a singer-songwriter. She has this incredible backstory on kind of obviously herself getting into music, but dealing with trauma and and in a very unique and specific way um the primary topics that we discuss are trauma-based um in her case it was a near-death experience with a plane crash um as well as at one point she had a medical issue that caused her to lose her voice for 75 days um but you know figuring out her her paths through these obstacles and these traumas and how to use that to fuel her own creativity but then to also go on and be able to speak to schools and events and things like that and you know let her story resonate through uh, the power of words and and hopefully, you know, make these connections with people. Um, I don't want to, you know, waste a bunch of time here at the beginning. Uh, I do want to thank Anastasia for taking the time to do this conversation. Uh, we had to reschedule it once because she had uh, a little bit of a sickness going on. We rescheduled it. Then I got sick, so we had to reschedule it again, um, and we're able to finally get it done. So, real big shout out to her for being so generous with her time. Uh, it is a little bit of a long one, I will tell you guys that, but, um, you know, hearing her story about the plane crash and how that has since affected her and manifested in these different ways, but also allowed her to. Uh, realize some opportunities within her life is a really powerful story and we didn't want to take away from that so uh, yeah let's just dive into this this is my conversation with Anastasia Elliott awesome okay well then uh, to kick things off let's start with kind of the the boring ass intro Uh, who are you and a little background on yourself for maybe people that don't know much about you yet my name's Anastasia Elliott. I am an independent artist and visual creator. I kind of call myself just a creator across the board because um, what I do is way more than just music. Um, and I host my own podcast called The Purple Sessions that I just started. That's been a really fun journey. And yeah, I grew up in Houston, Texas and moved to Nashville around 10 years ago, I guess, or 11, 12 now. Oh my gosh. I've been here longer than I thought. 
<laughs> um, I moved here by myself when I was 16 and um, began writing for this album that I've been developing for 10 years. And it's finally now going out into the world, which has been just a whirlwind. But yeah, I classically trained in piano and voice and um, wanted to really use those trainings to make rock music different. So I combine my operatic vocal stylings and symphonic tendencies with rock music. And this this album in particular definitely is very genre bending and I just have had so much fun making it. But it started uh, with my plane crash and that I was in on my way to uh, finish writing my song Crash Landing. And my name means resurrection. And so the whole album, is, it's called La Petite More, which means the little death or orgasm in French. And so the album explores all of those themes and kind of the personal deaths and resurrections that we go through throughout our life in relationships and just with ourselves. So there's my, my, little, my little quick <laughs> spiel. Awesome. But I also give mental speeches on trauma and creativity. And um, yeah, I've spoken at colleges and to high school students and corporate events about uh, mental health. And it's definitely become one of my favorite parts of what I do. Yeah, it's never it's, expected that. <laughs> no, and I, I'm kind of the same way. When I decided that I was going to start this podcast, it was one of those like, I had always touched on mental health in interviews with artists, you know, because obviously a lot of songs deal with depression and things like that. Um, but it got to the point where I've done a lot of work with like Heart Support and some of these other organizations. And I was like, you know, it, I, I feel like maybe there's more that I can do. Um, so I started this podcast to kind of, you know, the, the tagline that I've been using when I pitch it to like PR teams or to bands is, that I want to have this conversation without the veil of lyrics because, you know, it's so easy to hide behind words and a turn of phrase and make a metaphor for this, this tragic event. But the problem with that is oftentimes it gets misinterpreted. So I want to talk about these things without that veil so that people understand, like, musicians or not, we're all human beings and we go through these terrible events and it's okay. Yeah. What a fantastic elevator pitch <laughs> without <laughs> hiding behind the I love that. <laughs> yeah. um, so I one thing that did draw me to, to your story specifically is the plane crash. And I, I want you to kind of talk about that a little bit um, for people that aren't familiar with, you know, the, the severity. Because a lot of times people see it on one of two ends of that spectrum right like either oh my god it's a plane crash and it's the most horrific thing that's ever happened or like oh you were in a plane crash like you know the the wheel fell off as you were landing or something you know like not a big deal mm -hmm. oh yes absolutely this is this is quite a story it's, it's a it's a it's a long one but it's a good one you ready it. for it go for it so I guess this happened in July of 2013. I was 18. And at that time, I was traveling between Nashville and New York to write a lot. So I was like two weeks in New York, two weeks in Nashville. 
and I was on my way to New York and we, I guess it was pilot error. So she was coming in too fast and apparently had had, she was like number two on Southwest snowfly list, which is like a list that the crews and, you know, people basically don't want to fly with these people for one reason or, not, or another, whether it's training or attitude or something. And I feel like they should just take the top 50 people on that list personally and either fire them or train them better, whatever their problem is. But she apparently had a reputation having talked to other pilot friends of mine that I've met over the years. And she was coming in too fast. And instead of pulling up and circling again, like she should have, um, she crushed the front landing gear into the plane because you're supposed to land back wheels to front and she landed on the front wheels. And so we hit and then bounced up and then kind of landed close to the nose and slid 2000 feet and caught on fire. Not a huge fire, but fire enough to see fire. Right. And the, um, the, sound of it I think was probably like the worst part like that later on became because there were randomly people that were videoing our landing like they had it on video from inside the cabin and that sound like could just like would just send me into like the worst tailspins but we kind of stopped and they never said like brace for impact they never said the pilots never came on the monitors or the speakers at all and we stopped and Still, they never said anything. The flight attendants started crying and freaking out. Like they didn't know what to do. And the lady next to me actually, it was her first time ever flying. And so she was just like trying to stand up and screaming and like the reaction, you know, in, in the cockpit was very different. I don't, I don't know. I mean, they definitely say that you know, your life flashes before your eyes and stuff. But I don't, I don't remember that. I just remember being like, what, just like, what is going on? Like having no clue what to do. And uh, the plane was like filling with smoke and they left us on the plane for like 25 minutes filling with smoke and it got really thick and people were like starting to pass out. And so passengers started going to the bathroom and getting wet paper towels and passing them out for people to put on their faces. And flight attendants were like in total shock. I, I was in like row four and one of the flight attendants in the front was like, everybody's remain seated. We're not at the gate yet. And I turned to her and I was like, we're not going to the gate. Like, come on, get a grip. Like, do you not see what has just happened? Like, what are you supposed to be doing right now? And she just, they just had no clue. And so eventually it was so smoky the passengers were like, we're getting off of here. And we opened the door and put the slide down. And so I got to ride on that infamous <laughs> slide you see. And they told everyone to leave their bags and everything jackets on the plane. Cause at that point it was part of a federal investigation. Um, cause, cause it was pilot error. And I did not listen to that. And I can't believe anybody did because anyone that did was left with no money, no medicine, like all of their belongings. It was a mess. And so we all get off. I well, when I was still inside, my family was randomly visiting me in New York, which was really rare. And 
So my brother, my mom, and my dad were all there waiting for me to leave the airport. And I texted my mom and I was trying not to freak her out. And cause I didn't know what was going to happen. And I, and I just texted her and I was like, Hey mom, we kind of crashed a little bit. And she, and she thought I was joking and she messaged me back and she was like, ha ha, very funny. And I was like, no, like the plane is starting to fill with smoke and they're not letting us off. And then she said it came on the news. It's like, right, right. As I was saying that and she was like, oh shit, let's go to the airport. And they, so flashback to me, I, um, they put us in buses in the, in the landing strip next to our plane to watch our plane for like an hour and a half, which was terrible. Like they had no Advil, no water and being in smoke like that for that long, like everyone needed water. Everyone needed Advil. Like the impact of a plane crashing is like a car crash times 10. Like the whiplash was horrible. Like I had nerve pain down my arms for months and luckily obviously there were no deaths on my crash just some like minor injuries but um we yeah we were stuck on those buses for like an hour and a half and it was really interesting because almost everyone's phone was dead within 30 minutes and like they didn't want people sending pictures. They wouldn't let people charge their phones. Like they were, I, I personally think they had like cell phone jammers cause no one had very good service. Like they didn't want that getting out very much. And yeah. so, um, yeah, we were stuck there for a bit and then they put us in these closed conference rooms and wouldn't let us leave for like six or seven hours. And my family got to the airport and they were looking for us and nobody knew where we were. Nobody would tell them like where we were being held. And so they just started going through the airport. My mom was like, we we're like passing Homeland Security and like all these doors, like just like looking and they eventually found us. And my dad's a lawyer. So he kind of like set up a table and was just helping people figure out how they were even gonna get to their hotels, how they were gonna pay for cabs. Like nobody had anything, how they were gonna get their medicine. Like it was ridiculous because nobody had their luggage for like a week. And, um, yeah, I even had my jacket stolen, just <laughs> crazy, but they left us in these conference rooms and, uh, no blankets, no like comfort. They had EMS to check people out, but even them, like they didn't have even Advil or things for people to, or anything to calm people down. And my mom says that when they finally found us, she said, all I saw was this flash of purple hair, like running around. And I was, I was literally the 18 year old me. I learned in that moment. Well, first of all, I was, I was 18 when this happened and it really changed my life in so many ways, which we'll get to, but it broke like the invincible 18 year old mind that you have of like, you know, I'm never going to die and ever think about mortality. Like life is good. Like yeah. it totally yeah. broke that. But I learned in that moment that when I'm going through times of intense stress or things like that, I go into boss mode. Like I was not going to allow myself to be scared or to feel or to be upset. Like I was there being like, people need this and this and this. And so the airline people weren't helping. And so I found all the policemen that were basically keeping us from leaving. I was like, Hey, you're going to go down to the gift shop here's a hundred dollars. You're going to go buy Advil. You're going to buy some blankets. You're going to buy this and this and this. And so the policemen were like helping me to bring stuff up 
to give to people. And one of the policemen told my mom, you're never going to have to worry about that one. <laughs> like she's, she'll be fine in life. But I mean, I definitely wasn't fine, but it, it was kind of cool to be like, okay, I, I can handle my own, even at that age in a very intense situation. The damage didn't come till a little bit later. <laughs> and, um, but I definitely like growing up came from, I'm being from Houston and kind of in a more like socialite-esque world. I definitely did not have the emotional maturity or, and I wasn't around a lot of emotional maturity. I was around a lot of people who like were always happy and faked their lives a bit and where it was wrong to be anything other than perfect. And even in my own family, like they're not that way anymore, but I, I attribute a lot about to this experience and my own mental health journey since then. And kind of being like, Hey guys, this is not how you're supposed to be living. And, um, so, you know, even though I never want to go through that, that experience again, I'm so happy that it happened to me because it changed my life in a lot of ways. But um, after that happened and I went to the hotel, I was having like all these like tunnel vision kind of anxiety moments of just like going, but I didn't want anyone to know because it was wrong to not feel okay. And and even, you know, my family taking me to the hotel, like nobody really talked about it. It was just like, oh, like that crazy thing happened. But it like wasn't, oh my God, are you okay? Like, let's talk about how you're feeling. And so I was just like trying to keep my shit together. And like the next day, you know, like the thing we did was we went shopping, you know, to try to you know, make me feel better. I remember being at Bergdorf Goodman and I was in the jewelry section and one of the ladies had seen me on the news and she came up to me and was like, are you all right, honey? Do you need any water? Because my news clip, of course, that they chose was complaining about the fact that they didn't give us any water and that it was pretty chaotic. And literally my quote in all of the plane crash articles was Anastasia Elliott says it was pretty chaotic. And I was like, really guys? Like that's <laughs> what you chose of all the things that I said, but nice. It's like repeated in every article, but um, yeah, I was like, I've, I've had water since yesterday, but thank you for the nice gesture. Um, but you know, that, that was their loving way of trying to make me feel better and you know, what they knew to do at the time. And the next day I remember I went in the studio and I was just trying to resume life as normal. And I kept like still going to the bathroom and being like, you got this, like stop freaking out. But I would just go have like crying fits alone and not feeling settled with that. Well, then, which I have to say, the next two flights were maybe more traumatic than the first. And that's when the problem really started to set in because my ex-boyfriend, he flew up to be with me. My family was there. Like everyone was around me. And then they all left. And the next week I was like, okay, I'm going to fly back alone and I'm going to conquer this before it turns into a phobia. Horrible idea. Like, I don't know why any of them allowed this, but terrible idea. I set this flight up, though, to be like the perfect flight. I picked like what I, I looked at the turbulence forecaster. For those of you who don't know, that's a thing. And I look at it every time I'm flying, like obsessively now, like every hour. And um I've like picked the least turbulent time. I picked 
and I have to have an aisle seat. I have to be able to get up and get out. Um, especially after that, I don't like being trapped. Um, and so I set this up, I go, and I honestly didn't know how I was going to be because I didn't have like a very deep connection to my emotions. And I was like, I could be totally fine on this, or I could get on there and feel scared to death. Like I really didn't know. And so I went and I was fine getting on the plane. I thought it was going to be all right. And they messed up my seat assignment and they put me on a window seat. And I went to the flight attendant and I was like, look, I really need this flight to go well. We all need this flight to go well for me. And I really need to sit on an aisle. And she was like, I'm sorry, honey, that's your seat assignment. And I was like, "Mm -mm, you don't understand. Like, I need you to fix this for me. I need you to get me an aisle seat. There is someone on this plane that will switch with me. I promise. And I was like, I'll pay them to switch with me. Like, I just can't do this. And she was just, no, no, no. And I was like trying not to say in front of everyone, I was in a plane crash last week, but then I had, I just kind of went off on her and I was like, this happened to me last week and this flight has to go well. And she was like, oh honey, that wasn't a crash. And I was just like, oh, I lost it at that point. I was like, excuse me? Like, uh, it absolutely fucking was like, it doesn't matter that nobody died. Like, the, I mean, of course it's great that nobody died, but like, that doesn't mean right. that it wasn't horribly traumatic. And it absolutely was. If we had been one more foot to the left, we would have cartwheeled and exploded and had no survivors. So we were incredibly lucky and I'm grateful for that, but still a little fucked up in the head. And so then the other flight attendant was like hearing the commotion and she comes back and she fixed it. And the first half of the flight, went well and then we hit extreme turbulence and apparently it was one of the worst days to fly of the year and we were dropping like big 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 drops and I just did not know what to do with myself and I was like walking up and down the aisles like I couldn't sit still I was just panicking and they that flight attendant felt really bad at that point and the other one brought me up to first class and was like giving me cookies and like trying to I feel better when I can communicate with the pilot or when they're communicating like I don't like when there's turbulence or when there's like things and they never say anything like I prefer when pilots are like we just hit some rough air and we're gonna be like this for you know probably 20-30 minutes because in my mind that's like they know that some they know that this is happening and and it's fine when they say nothing i feel like is this all right like is like is everything okay so when the flight attendants can at least either get them to talk more and and now i do request that jet blue is the best at this they never even have to request that they're just very communicative so if any pilots are on here watching uh your passengers really like communication (laughs) um but it helps and so for a while, I learned to request that to just say, hey, if there's turbulence, would you mind telling the pilot to just like pop on and say it's all right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, she brought me up. And but I have to say that I think, in a like, obviously, the first plane crash was the like traumatic thing. But that flight in a lot of ways was more traumatic for me than the first because I was trapped in something that I couldn't change for hours. 
And it stayed that way for like two hours. And I was just like, I was so terrified. And we landed and I, I was like, I had no choice but to fly almost every week. And so I was like, this can't be a problem. So I called my vocal doctor and I was like, hey, I need Xanax. I need something that's going to help with this. And he was like, well, I haven't seen you in a while. So I don't know like the proper dosage to give you. So test it out at home before you go on the plane. This story, this story is pretty funny. And um, so I took half of one in the studio one day and I didn't really feel anything. And so I doubled it. I took a whole. And the last thing I remember is getting dropped off at the airport and saying goodbye to my ex. And then I just have flashes of memory. The next one is being at the benefit makeup vending machines that they have at the airport. And all I remember is having my purse like spilled on on the floor looking for my credit card. And I guess I just paid the machine and left because I didn't, I don't have any makeup from it. So I don't really know what happened there. And then I somehow found, I blacked out completely. And I, I was clearly like, you know, light a little light overdose there and i got on the plane apparently don't remember and my next memory is waking up in new york just on the plane nobody else was on the plane and i had whitening strips in my teeth i have no clue where i got them from and i had my face down on my ipad listening to modern family but i had passed out and i woke up and the flight attendant like came back and I literally couldn't even speak. Like I was drooling on myself. I couldn't make words. Like I, I could see and was like aware that like something wasn't right, but I like got sick all over the plane and she comes back and my mom is like calling me obsessively because she was tracking my flight and it probably still does. And she knew I'd landed, but I hadn't said anything. And so she was calling me and I just like gave the phone to the flight attendant and she was like, I was a, you know, flight attendant in the military and, or, you know, she worked with the flights in the military. I don't know if we have, they call them flight attendants, but she was there and she was like, I know PTSD. And she was like, this is definitely like PTSD and don't worry, like I'll take care of her. And so they took me off this plane on a stretcher and tucked me out. And then they just let me go. They deemed that I was fine and just let me go in New York City. And I had no clue what was going on in my, in any surroundings. Like I was totally blacked out, but apparently I was talking fine and well-spoken. And so they thought I was all right. And I had a car picking me up at the airport because um, usually I'd take a cab, but I was like, you know, just trying to plan as much as I could. And he got me. At some point, I got sick on myself again because apparently, no memory of this either, I went right from the car into the dry cleaner underneath where I used to stay and took off my clothes and gave it to him and told him the whole story of the plane crash so he didn't think I was a drug addict. And I told him, I promise I'll come back and pick up my clothes. Like, please take these. I I was already taking, I was just taking care of things, completely blacked out. And I went upstairs to um, the apartment and I took a shower. I got dressed and I'm a homebody. I don't really love going out. I got like dressed up and spoke to my ex. He thought I was fine. My mom thought I was fine. And I went out to two parties. 
I picked up the tab for everybody. Apparently I'm very generous when I'm <laughs> whacked out. All I remember from one of them is going back and forth to the bathroom and throwing up cold water. I just remember the feeling of really cold water. And my friend that was there Wanda later when she found out what had happened, she was like, yeah, we were all wondering why you were chugging cold water. Like, I guess my body was trying to flush and, um, yeah. And I, I made it back to my place. Like I being loose in New York city like that, I am very lucky yeah. and, yeah. um, made it back to the apartment and the next day has a couple of holes in it that I'm not hundred percent sure what I did, but hopefully it was fun and harmless. <laughs> <laughs> and those were my three back-to-back flights that were just a horrific three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> So that there is my first little major trauma there. Yeah. So very, I told you it was a long it's, one. Yeah, no, it is. But I think, I think it goes to show a lot as well with, you know, people assume that like when a traumatic event like that happens, that everything is instantaneous. Like immediately you understand that you have PTSD or that this is going to change your life forever. But I think more often than not, it is a delayed thing, like because mm-hmm. your body goes into like kind of the fight, fight or flight type situation and adrenaline gets pumping, things like that. So all of a sudden, like you compartmentalize what event just happened and that doesn't start opening up until other triggers happen. And then you go, oh, like, yeah. well, like you said, like having to plan out that next flight meticulously is a response to something that I did caused that plane crash. Mm-hmm. Not true, but in yeah. your head, that's where it goes. So yeah. let's talk that's a little like, bit I about- mean, I have weird things, like I won't sit on the left side of a plane because that's where I was sitting and I won't sit in the fourth row. Like I have plenty of things that I'm like, I won't do that. I have like a weird ritual where I have to touch the outside of the plane with my right hand while also stepping on with my right foot. Like, it's just like this weird thing for me that I have to like connect with the outside of the plane. And like, I have plenty of like bizarre things. Like I now, like for a couple of years after that, I found my dose of Xanax and was basically just like a little sleepy drugged, but I would just cry the whole time. Like I never, I, I don't know that I was a hundred percent kind to myself with that whole thing because I had no choice but to fly, but I would force myself to fly, to fly alone. And I would just cry the whole time. And I just kept like being like, we're going to get over this. I'm going to push myself. There were, so I did that for years, probably like two years. And then I, was able to wean off the Xanax, but my next weird thing was to find a speck of dirt on the window and I would see how much it was moving in the clouds and that would be how much anxiety I would have. And so as long as it was still and I could like white knuckle my seat, my seat rests, I would yeah. stare at the dirt the whole flight. And, um, and then after that, li- listening to things is too much stimulation for me. So I like to be able to hear what's going on. So I can't really like watch TV or anything, but I found things like knitting or playing solitaire, like things that have to keep my brain active and almost meditative. Like I have to have a certain amount of focus, but they're not gonna like overstimulate me. That's kind of what I do now, but the more space I have from it, 
the better it is, but turbulence is my trigger. Landing doesn't even phase me, even though that's what happened. But turbulence is my is my trigger, I think, because of that second flight. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about, too, you know, you you mentioned your upbringing and how, like, the family and even the, the social circles that you were in at the time, like, the need to be okay. Because I think that applies to the vast majority of people. They assume that they need to be okay. And I think until an event like yours happens or some sort of traumatic event happens, people are scared uh for lack of a better term to just say look you know i'm having a bad day or i don't like when this happens or whatever so what was that like obviously you know the event happens and you start to realize that within yourself how did how do you feel like that kind of transferred over to the family and beyond that Mm After that, I definitely think I swung completely in the other direction and became a super oversharer. I probably still am a little bit, but I started telling everyone that would listen my deepest, darkest feelings. And that's not great either, because not everyone can hold the space for all of that. But um, I think that was my like initial response. But by doing that, I was able to find real friends and make real connections with people rather than kind of the friends and connections you make when you're in that fake, just I'm okay all the time place. And that's when I developed the friendships I still have now. And I don't really know anybody from before that. And, and I, I found yoga, I found meditation. I started really pushing into, um, I'm a spiritual person. I mean, I'm not a religious person, but I am a spiritual person. And I started learning and becoming obsessed with learning. Like before the plane crash, I hated reading. I hated being outside. I hated all that kind of stuff. And after the crash, I started averaging like 60 books a year. And I started loving to be outside and with my hands in the dirt like it it's like it just woke this thing up in me that was just hungry for learning and i wanted to it it sparked all of my creativity to make you know things that were huge like it i love trauma more than just about anything and i call her the trauma fairy and she's visited me many times the plane crash is just the first of many but even though it really sucks in the moment Every single time I've had something horrible happen to me, it has been my up level, like in a video game. It's like the, it's the thing that has made me cooler and better and more creative and more learned. And I think it's never something to avoid. And now I'm like, it's, it's sometimes great to not be okay because that's where like the meat of life is. And that's where like you learn so much about yourself. Like if I had never had that happen to me, I maybe would have never learned much of anything about myself. Like, you know, the kinds of people that you kind of see that are older and like all they do is work and watch television. And there's nothing that like has, is any substance to them. And I think the coolest people I know have usually been through some serious shit. And like, there's, there's like a different understanding of life. And so a lot of people will message me even after I give speeches and stuff and ask me like, you know, they'll say, I wish I had your mindset. Like it's so positive. And I'm like, 
there's more days than not that are not positive, but that's good. Like always striving to be positive. Like how boring. There's this great movie called Bliss where there's like this world where all the people are happy all the time. And then it's just so boring. Like Owen, Owen Wilson gets yeah. there and is like, this sucks. Like when you don't have that comparison and that, you know, range, I don't think that's like fertile soil for growth. So when my family got to see me going through all of that and finding things like meditation and um, yoga, and I became a Reiki practitioner, I started working a lot with energy. I was basically trying to find anything that could help my brain and my body and my nervous system. And so I just went on this quest to try absolutely everything I could get my hands on. And then my mom also, I would bring my mom to things and be like, oh my God, you've got to try this. You got to try this. And she was always down. Like my family was never not like interested. It just wasn't what they grew up with. And then my brother, you know, he really got into journaling and, and you know, spirituality. And he's the kind that reads like huge textbooks on like all the religions of the world. And he's just fascinated in spirituality in general. But yeah, I think it's just, it's an awareness piece. I think, I think trauma and I think dark times bring awareness to everything in life. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think, you know, the, the thing you said that I really like is that these traumatic events are kind of your, your level up moments for life. And I think that that's a really cool way to look at it because so many people assume that oh, this trauma happened to me, so I'm getting knocked back a couple steps, or, you know, like, mm -hmm. I have to downgrade so many things, and it's like, okay, but that trauma happened to you, you survived it, how does that not make you stronger than what you mm -hmm. were before it? Like, I, you know, like, obviously, the depending on the event, yeah, there it's is really, something to go into that. Exactly. It's really, I think, about how you look at it, because... I mean, you see amazing people all the time that have lost things and turned that into basically their life mission. And obviously this depends on the event. Like you may be able to tell me a situation where this isn't true, but I really believe that nothing gets thrown at us in life that we can't handle and that we're not ready for to be able, ready to handle or, or like ready for that up-level moment. But I think a lot of people kind of let that opportunity slide by them and they kind of get in victim mode and don't, don't do the things they need to do to turn that experience into what makes them unique and what makes them gold. So I think trauma is like a fork in the road where you can either choose to harness that and make it your superpower, or you can go towards the other direction and numb out and take your life down the path of, you know, just being lesser than and allowing it to kind of defeat you. Um, I have seen that in every kind of thing I've been through and, and not to say it's not hard. Of course it's hard. Like life is hard. Yeah. If you're living it, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think with that, like, it's an easy thing. And I think it's much more common than, than a lot of people realize but I think it, it's the most people feel like a background character in their own life, mm -hmm. whether they'll admit it or not, you know? So 
like you said, that trauma comes and they let it slide by because, oh, somebody else will take care of that. Mm-hmm. Without being toxic with it, I think we all need to look at our lives and go, you know what? I'm the main character of my story. Like, yes. I am strong enough to take care of this. I deserve to be able to do these things. And when you make that, that switch in your head, like you said, it, it's these level up moments where you can go, cool, that shitty thing happened to me, but I survived it. And now I can go show other people how to survive that too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, people can, you know, they'll go to therapy or they'll like do these things, but like maybe not really apply what they learn. Like, you know, they'll just go once a week and bitch about it, but like, they're not really taking any real action in their lives. And I think too, another piece of that is not looking constantly to outside sources for the answers to things, because when you can stop asking opinions on things and, you know, that's when I think you can really get in touch with that, you know, whatever that changes that happens. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, So let's talk a little bit about you've been able to to take these traumas that you've experienced. And you said, you know, now you're able to go to schools and and talk about it and help, you know, do seminars, things like that, and also use it as fuel for your creativity. What has this done for you in that sense of like the creativity side, like using you know, music or arts and visual arts as like a therapy to, okay, these things happened. Here's how I can translate that into something that's a beautiful thing instead of this traumatic thing. Mm -hmm. My creation process sometimes is very like, okay, I I went through this thing and I'm going to make this thing out of it. But a lot of the times it's, letting my subconscious create and I don't always know in the moment that I'm creating about that thing like whatever that thing is like a lot of the time I realize later on when I analyze my work in the back like in the back end that oh I was saying this or I was creating this like I believe sometimes now that art can manifest life especially in the um, situation of my plane crash but I I kind of just let whatever comes to me flow and get into the emotional state. I think that whatever that thing is made me feel and just let the ideas happen however they want to manifest. And then afterwards, I'll look at them and be like, oh, wow, like this piece that I made, this was going on in my life. And that's so cool how that mirrored that. But I think we're all creative beings, like whether you think you're creative or not, like our natural state as humans is to create. And if you're not creative, that's something that can be fixed. And that's more a problem with you not being, knowing yourself or being in touch with yourself. But anyone can be creative. Everything we do is creating. Every choice we make is creating. Like you literally are creating your life and your future with every single decision you make even what you choose for lunch, you are inherently a creator. And so I think when you're kind of getting in victim mode and not, you know, using those experiences to do anything, like that is creating that future for you, the the negative one. And when you can 
you know, I show up to do my creative work, even if I'm having a shitty day and whatever manifests that day is what was created from that energy, that shitty energy. And I just think the act of creating in general is healing, whether it's cooking dinner and doing something really like when I say healing through creativity, it's not always like, you know, look at this 13 song visual album that I made. That's about my plane crash and how all these, you know, aerospace uh, like symbolism is threaded through all my videos and look at these Easter eggs. Like, yes, I am an intense creator, but I mean, even just, you know, knitting is a therapy for me. Like that's creating for me. Like I'm, that is, you know, how I've found I can stand to be on a plane and how I can deal with my anxiety is making clothes and cooking dinner for myself is one of the most nourishing things I do in the day. And that's a creative act. It's not just those big moments. So I think sometimes when people are like oh well i'm not like the best musician in the world so that's not going to work for me no anything you're doing is creating so i think it's finding whatever that thing is for you that is enjoyable and makes you really happy and just continuing to like show up for that i don't know if that was like a, a good eloquent answer to your question but you know for me it's you know manifested in an album and in a, in a lot of things, but it, it also manifests in my daily life in creating. Yeah, no, I, I think that is a good answer because I think, like you said, people kind of overanalyze and go, well, I, I'm not a singer or songwriter. I can't do that. I, I can't paint, so I'm not going to do that. Okay, great. But what can you do? You know, like you said, your brother does journaling and while yeah. that may not be something that ever gets published to other people, that is still a creative outlet because you're narrating what happens in your day and your life. And when you start looking at it as, you know, I'm still taking in what happens to me and outputting into another medium, mm -hmm. that is creation. Yeah. And sometimes I think the things that aren't for public viewing are the more healing creative acts because like music and making videos and all that is healing and creative for me, but there's also, you know, I'm a super overachiever. I hate, I fear failure. I feel insecurity about, you know, people are not going to like this and, you know, making sure that everyone gets to see it. And there's so much stress that comes with, you know, my job that sometimes the smaller creative acts I think are more, more healing yeah you know yeah definitely agree um so let's talk about some of these events that you do with your public speaking and you know going to colleges things like that at what point i guess through all of this um you know the traumas that you've experienced did you realize that like i have an opportunity to vocalize these things not in a song and say like here's what life is and these are some steps to course correct or to be able to at least take it in and find a basket to put it in and you know help deal with things yeah um i got the opportunity to host my own panel at nam which is a huge music conference and that one wasn't 
necessarily geared towards mental health. It was about the future of technology for independent artists. But on the way there, I was connected with um, the Great Khalid Foundation, which is a fantastic foundation of the musician Khalid, his mother and him run it. And they support music in schools and um, they do this amazing thing every Thanksgiving where they feed a ton of families Thanksgiving dinner and they just have fantastic events throughout the year. And we got connected and decided to throw a benefit show together for the victims of the Walmart massacre in El Paso. And um, there was a school there that they asked me to speak at. And that was my first speech that I got to go and give. And I, I remember just being very like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm gonna you know, teach them. And I, I worked really hard on this speech and just kind of went up there and talked about all of my different stories and what I had learned. And I'm sure my first one was a little rocky, but it had an impact because after that was when I started getting the kinds of messages that I like always dreamed of getting of, you know, that really changed my life. And, you know, asking me questions about things or people messaging me, kids messaging me and telling me their stories and saying, you know, if you could go through all of that, I can get through this. And I started to see the effect that sharing my story had on people. I think I still struggle with it on a social media scale to the amount that I would like to share it because the concept of just talking to myself on a camera and just like posting it, I don't know, like part of it feels to me like, I think it's lovely, but part of me also feels like it's it's trying to exploit something to just gain popularity. And I prefer when I'm talking to people's faces. So it's a lot easier for me to do that kind of stuff in a speech setting but i'm learning i'm learning how to adapt it to like the masses and in a way that i feel good about but it's taken time but that first speech when i started getting that feedback of you know the what should i do like this is what i'm going through or you know my parents won't let me go to therapy they don't believe in therapy but here's this horrible thing that i went through and and I just started giving advice and like telling people, you know, carefully, because you have to be careful with that stuff. But this is what worked for me. Or like, you know, here are some books maybe to start with. Like, let me know what you think of these. Or, you know, I had learned so much about so many things in the year over the years. And so I had like a wealth of resources to be able to give people to like, oh, that's what you're going through. Like, then try this book or, you know, maybe you should look into this thing. Meditation's not really feeling good to you. How about you try these other five types of meditations that you maybe never heard of and let me know how those work. And just kind of starting, started to build more like super fans from people that really got to connect with me on a deeper level. And I realized that your greatest power is definitely in your vulnerable stories because that's where I started making those really deep connections with other people on. Yeah. And depending on the type of event or the type of group that I'm talking to, my speech definitely shifts. Like I go and talk to vocal majors a lot about um, 
about my vocal trauma because I lost my voice for 75 days. I couldn't speak or sing or whisper. I didn't know if I would ever sing again, which was like, is my whole identity as a human. It was like major identity crisis. Um, probably the darkest time of my life. And so I go and talk to vocal majors that are under the extreme pressure of, you know, what being a voice major in college is like. And and that's been really fulfilling. It just, it just really depends on the situation, but I just, I just love it. Like, and I also, the podcast for me, cause my podcast is, you know, I'm in the early days, I'm still working on the kinks, but it's about creativity and mental health. And I was like, I have all these cool ass people in my life that have been through amazing things or like providers that I've been to that have a lot to share. Like, can I create almost like a resource so that people can kind of demystify the idols that they look up to, like whether it's huge musicians or small indie musicians or, you know, doctors, happiness coaches, like, can I bring all these people that look perfect and awesome on social media to have like conversations about darkness with me? Because that was kind of my way of being like, I'm not going to get on social media and cry about my problems. Like that's not really my style, but I could have cool conversations with other cool people doing fascinating things and talk to them about how it's not always been good and what they struggle with to hopefully bring that realness and, and let people see that we're all just people too and going through the same things. Um, and I love it. I mean, I still have no clue how to grow a podcast, but we're working on it. Hey, it's just I'm fun. I'm working on that too. <laughs> it's one of the most enjoyable parts of my week to do it. I'm like, even if 20 people watch it, like I love having these conversations and I really hope that it is helpful to somebody out there because people have a lot of great stories and resources to share. But that was my, I started it because a fan texted me or messaged me on Instagram something like I posted I used to post like inspirational things in my stories all the time and they messaged me and were like I wish I could have your mindset like I you're just so positive all the time and I got this message when I was like crying in my laundry room about some shit I don't know I have crying breakdowns all the time and I got this message and I was like man I'm really doing myself my people a disservice by only showing up positively because then they, they think that that's just the only way that I am. How can I do something that shows them that's not true while not just being the person that's whining on social media? So yeah. I created that and hopefully, hopefully it gets helpful. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And, you know, I, I've said a lot, especially on both podcasts, I guess, but like, you know, the, the world we live in now, right, with social media, as much as I love Instagram for everything it's good at, uh, it's also a fucking very potentially toxic and triggering platform because, like you said, I we only post that awesome five seconds of our day. And so, you know, when people go through these perfectly curated feeds and they go, man, everybody else has their life together why don't i they don't see you know like you said that crying break every day that i have to take or whatever it is and it's this almost 
ghosts. What word do I want to use for this? It's almost a self-sacrificing or self-sabotaging type of event because we follow these people that we look up to, but then we compare ourselves to them because we assume that everything is golden. Mm -hmm. It's it's such a tough thing because why wouldn't you post your best five seconds on Instagram? Like, why would you post the shitty stuff? Like, I'm guilty of it. I, of course, like, I want to post my cool photos and my creative things. Like, that's the stuff I want to share. That's the stuff I want to manifest in my life. Like, I I think that, you know, we use it as kind of a an idea board or just like something that's like, you know, this is what I want to present to the world. But yeah, it's, it is, you know, it, it's a tough thing. Like, it, it's, it's a tough line to find. I have so much to say about social media and mental health. My Lord, social media is the bane of my existence. As much as I love it for connecting with people and getting to share my art, it's the way it's set up. It's so not meant for creativity. No, it's... Algorithmically and, you know, yeah, just with... being like, okay, I took three days to you know, make something and I didn't schedule my posts and now the algorithm hates me and doesn't want to show my stuff to anybody and like just the pressure I constantly feel to be on every platform and make enough stuff for everything and you know I clearly very much care to have high quality looking content and it's really hard to keep up with all of that like that causes more crime TikTok has caused more crime breakdowns than anything and I'm not even active on there that's about to change I finally got myself a TikTok manager to help me just organize my ideas and, and, you know, make it less stressful to help me edit, to like, just help me because I was having crying breakdowns almost every week about TikTok. Cause I was like, I know I need to be on here. Clearly this is really helpful for music discovery. I don't understand this platform. I don't want to take the time to understand it because I'm doing a million other things. And I don't know how to make myself interesting in five seconds. I'm a very long-winded person. I like making big picture content, not three-second videos. And I was just, I hit this moment where I was like, you know, this is continuous mental breakdown every week. I should get some help for this. Like I should get source someone to help me with this because this isn't doing me a service. But yeah, social media, as much as I love it, burnout. For sure. And that's kind of where I'm at with, um, that's kind of where I'm at with TikTok is like, I know I should be on there, you know, and I do these podcasts and I've got tons of content, but I'm the same as you in the sense that like, I'm a long winded type of person. So even taking clips of these podcasts, it's like, okay, but what to, you know, what 30 seconds do I want to pull? I, I don't want that sound bite. I want the whole thing. So like, here's three minute video that you're not going to watch, not the 30 seconds. Yeah, I'm there. I'm there with you. But that's why I'm like, okay, I need to get one of these kids to come in and I guess figure out what the best clip to post is that will bring the people over to watch the full things that I want them to watch. Yeah. yeah. And find and the right people because I know there are people out there yeah. that like to watch long things. <laughs> yeah. And th- that goes back to, you know, like you said, growing the, we the podcast is like trying to find the right demographics and get it targeted to the right people. Um, and yours is a little different format than mine, obviously, mm-hmm. because you do a lot of your stuff live initially and then it's up, you know, after the fact. But 
Um, I think for me, it's the whole like, for me, I've got the music side of stuff, and I know there's a lot of people that obviously want that. But how many people want to admit that they need a mental health podcast, you know, and that's the scary, the scary grounds that people don't want to get into. So, like, when you try to target the marketing for it, like, who's actually got the right marketing setup? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I feel you. I'll let you know when I figure it out. <laughs> but hopefully we'll but both figure we it out about the same time. <laughs> Yep. Um, hope, I know there's mental health junkies out there just like us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk a little bit. Want. Yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about, um, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about the Purple Sessions. Um, you touched on it a little bit, but like with the Purple Sessions, what are some topics that people can anticipate, you know, hearing from you and like, what kinds of, of people are you talking with? Yeah. Um, so far I've had ha um, the happiness coach, my friend, Rob Mack, he's definitely one of my favorite episodes. And, um, when I started out the first couple of episodes, I didn't do as much, previous like prior research and I just kind of let it be a conversation and I finished them and was like I think I didn't really get to the heart of where I really wanted to dig and so I started doing a lot more prep and Rob's was the first one that I had done a ton of research I read his I read his book right before like I and he just had so many awesome nuggets to share about how to get a happier more fulfilled life but I talked to Kat Von D, uh, Lincoln Parrish, who was one of the founding members of Cage the Elephant, his episode's coming up. So I get, you know, big artists that have done really huge things. And then I also have some indie artists who are giving you the other side of the experience. As an up and comer, I have, I've had a Grammy award-winning mixer who's, uh, who did my record with me. He engineered and mixed my record. And it was fascinating to talk to him about his own creative process and also how he supports artists because it's his job to basically make everything come together. And he's been in the studio with so many fantastic indie and massive artists and to kind of see the common creative pitfalls that he witnesses amongst artists. And, um, and we talked a lot about um, imposter syndrome in that episode. And I've had wellness gurus. I had Shannon Bond, who's the CEO of Pearsoma, which is a bath salt and bath ritual company. We talked about breakup bathing and having an emotional release in the tub and how to use soaking as a therapy for yourself and more than just taking a bath. Um, I have some sex therapists coming up to talk about um, sexual healing and sexual empowerment because that's definitely a topic I'm super passionate about after leaving a eight year long toxic sexually toxic relationship myself um I have I yeah that's that's like kind of a a little rundown of like the type of people I'm talking to but I look for wellness professionals that are doing interesting things that are non-traditional because I'm definitely not traditional when it comes to medicine or healing, 
having healed my own autoimmune issues and my traumas. Um, I love the, the weirder woo-woo people. So it'll be full of woo-woo people and artists and creatives and, you know, anyone I meet. Like I just interviewed the top two mentalists in the, you know, in the world. They're, they're some of the only ones that have fooled Penn and Teller and they're magicians. And I wanted to talk to them about, you know, reading minds and what that's like to be a, a mentalist and how that, you know, relates to their mental health. So really, whenever I meet somebody that's doing something that's really cool, I want to talk to them about how they got there and their, you know, dark times and their good times and how they, what are like, what's in their mental health toolkit and how it's different than mine because my hopes to give the variety so that people could be like, Oh, maybe I'll try what that person's doing. Yeah. So, and I, yeah. I, we, I, love, I run the gamut. Yeah. Like I, I'm any kind, any kind of person. Yeah. I, and I was going to say, I love that you're doing, you know, kind of the full spectrum mine. I intentionally kind of niched down into the musician side of it. Um, mainly because that's where most smarter. are. <laughs> It is, but it isn't, you know, yeah. it's, it's one of those, like, because obviously I, I talk with some artists that people have never heard of. So they're like, eh, I'm not really going to pay attention to that. But at the same time, like, you know, yeah. there's opportunities within everybody. And I think that's the, the thing that I love doing about the podcast. And maybe you're the same is that, you know, a lot of these people that get put on pedestals or are viewed in, in these lights of like, oh, they already have it figured out. They're a specialist or whatever. But then when you actually talk to them and they tell you like, hey, here's the shit that I went through on this. It's like, oh, you're a fucking human being. You're not necessarily any better than me. You're maybe a, just a step or two ahead yeah, of me on this ladder. Fascinating thing. Yeah, that's been the fascinating thing actually about talking to artists in particular on the spectrum is that there are artists that I look at and I'm like, I can't wait to be where you're at. Like both audience wise, show wise, like I can't wait to be doing what you're doing. And like the, the friends of mine and, and you know, they're also having the same mental breakdowns as me of being stressed about social media, being stressed that they're not getting paid enough for what they're doing and how they're gonna, you know, keep creating. And they literally are having these same stressful things that I'm having. They're just, you know, in front of more people, but it's the same problems. And, you know, even talking to my friend Lincoln who was in Caged Elephant, he's not anymore because he, you know, struggled with some mental health stuff and also was just kind of like, you know, they were on some of the biggest tours you could possibly want to get on like they were in kind of the end of the really like good days of being an artist where you know you got to be new and you were just like put on with you know freaking rolling stones and he kind of he did it all and was just kind of like all right been there done that and left when the band hit their like highest point he walked away from it and was like all right i've done this i'm ready for the next career like let's go and and i look at something like that and i'm like man like I wish I could be where you are. And it, it's been kind of cool to talk to people where I'm like, I wish I could be where you are and to see, okay, it, it doesn't really get better. Like 
it does in some sense, but it also doesn't. And I think that has inspired me. You know, that's been one of my biggest takeaways is that's inspired me to try to find happiness and joy wherever I am in the process, especially now and to just not spend 95% of my time killing myself for the work because it doesn't stop and it doesn't get better. It may just, you know, <laughs> feel better or look better, but the same problems are still there. So I got to enjoy the journey. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've said that a lot about anytime you lose someone, especially like dealing with grief and things, everybody's first thing they tell you is, oh, you know, just give it time. It'll get better. That's bullshit. Uh, so I lost my dad in 2004 to a massive heart attack and I was 19 and here I am 37 years old and I still think about him every day. You know, like it didn't get any better. It's gotten easier because I'm better equipped to deal with the issues. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I mean, I, I touched on my vocal trauma, but um like, even though I have my voice back and it's better than ever, still before every single show, even though, you know, I know what to do. That's like one of my greatest sources of anxiety now, but it's been years, but I don't think that's ever going away. I don't think I'm ever going to be jazzed to get on an airplane. Like, I don't think I'm ever going to be like, hell yeah, seven hour flight. Like, I'm going to be totally fine. Like, there's plenty of things that, you know, are built into my day to be like, oh, God. I'm exhausted from this, like, um, but that's just how it is. <laughs> there's yeah. there's no advice to change that because I don't think they're changing that. No, but I think I, I luckily don't want to <laughs> anytime soon, but I haven't really gone. The one thing I haven't really gone through is losing anybody um, death wise. <laughs> I haven't really experienced that kind of grief. I mean, I broke off an engagement of eight years and lost a child that I spent 10 years raising um, like in 2020. And that, you know, for me, it was the closest thing to like losing somebody, but I haven't really been through that kind of grief yet. Right. <laughs> it's inevitable, but, but not yet. Yeah. <laughs> like, hold off a little longer, please. But I think that goes into, you know, the term that you used with like the mental health toolkit, right? So like, if people would start looking at it more in that light as well, that I have all these tools to help, you know, repair my mental health. Um, and I don't want to say fix mental health because quite honestly, I don't know that yeah. there is any fixing it, you know. Uh, you can, it's an ebb and flow. Yeah. It's an ebb and a flow. But you can definitely repair it. And I think that's where that toolkit, like you said, comes in. And then when you start kind of, well, like you and I, we're talking to these other artists and people about mental health and going, oh, that's a cool idea. I've never thought about that. Like, well, now I can add that as an mm -hmm. option and maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. Yeah. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a band aid and it'll get me by for a couple hours or whatever, mm -hmm. but it's something. Yeah. And I definitely have done this wrong, like more than, more than not. Um, for a long time after the plane crash, after I lost my record deal, after I had my vocal surgery and was also dealing with this relationship that wasn't serving my best self, I was over-functioning 
to the max. Like I, in my head, I was like, all right, I have to meditate, I have to journal, I have to do yoga. I'm going to make my celery juice every morning. I eat this way. I never have sugar. I never have a cookie. Like, because it, you know, it was like dealing with my autoimmune issues. I can't eat gluten. I can't eat all these things. I am perfect. And I was perfect. <laughs> Not happy mentally, I don't think, but I was over-functioning so much. And I think that for me, was like the band-aid of thinking I had the perfect mental health routine, but not allowing it any flexibility. Like even in my journal at the top, I would write the day, like, like I do morning pages. So every morning I do three pages of stream of conscious journaling and I like day one morning pages, day one. And I got to like 400 something. And for me, it was like, so like, I have to get this. I have to get this. And I even lied a few times. I even lied a few times. Like, I know I did this, but that was like for myself, like there was a day I skipped and I pretended like I didn't. And I just kept going because I was like, I will do this right. And I will do this perfectly. And (laughs) I'm like, just remembering that. And that's really funny to me. But um, after I lost that (laughs) engagement and, um, you know, I was holding up that internal structure because I couldn't control what was on the outside. So I was going to be militant with what I could control. Once I got that big life shift in 2020, like right after the pandemic started, it was like, I lost my creative partner and my life partner and my kid. And I was just like reeling a bit. And I swung to the complete other direction and became so unstructured. I stopped working out. I stopped caring about what I was eating. I just was like so exhausted from efforting so much that I was like, I'm just going to let myself be. And I mean, it's not a great thing to stop doing all of that, all of the stuff. But at the same time, I think it was healing for me in a way because that's what I needed was to just you know, that was what I needed at the time. You know, even my therapist was like, that's a good thing for you because it's the opposite of your tendency. So don't effort right now. Just like let yourself chill and reward yourself for all of the efforting you've been doing with, you know, some Netflix binges and do that for a few weeks, like allow that and be okay with that. And then I started to learn how to, you know, be fine with things not being perfect. And now, like I push myself to have things in my routine that are intentionally imperfect. Like when I do my journaling now, instead of having them numbered and tracked, I have journals where I just open to a random page and start writing. And I intentionally make that like, I don't know where this is in the sequence. I'm never going to read this. Like this is just my thoughts or, and you know, meditation apps they have this thing that is supposed to help you create a habit where they, it tracks how many days in a row you've done it. But that was another thing for me. Like I had, you know, I've meditated on Headspace 8,000 minutes and I've gotten this many days in a row, but it was causing me stress to be like, I'm going to miss a day and my streak's going to be gone. And so now I have like a few different apps and meditations I like, and I rotate them and I make sure I never get more than a one day streak. So I'm not competing with myself because I'm a competitive person and I will start competing with myself. And I have fucking cookies when I want them. Like I know that I can't eat them all the time, but 
I'm fine with that. And, and I, you know, I'm finding my balance and I think it's somewhere in the middle of just being and not efforting and, and having some structure. So I kind of, instead of creating like a very ordered morning and evening routine, like I used to have now, I almost have like a, a pick your own adventure ideas routine where I'm like, okay, this morning I have two hours to myself and these are the things that I think would best serve my mental health today. I really feel the need to journal and get some shit out. Meditation kind of, it's always usually there in the morning, unless my brain is just so on that like, I'm not even going to really enjoy meditation as a journal. And I like to read a chapter of something nonfiction and inspirational or self-helpy every morning. I find when I'm inputting that kind of stuff into my head, I am able to stay on being motivated about self-care more. Um, I try to move every day. Sometimes that's easier than other days. Sometimes I don't feel like doing cardio and I'll just stretch. It depends. The working out piece is still uh, being worked back into the schedule <laughs> because these 10 pounds that I have gained from the non-efforting time have to go before music videos get shot in a month. <laughs> but. You know, it's just a process of working with yourself is, I guess, what I'm trying to say and to not beat up on yourself and to allow there to be flexibility in the routine as yeah. a recovery perfectionist. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the big one for me that you said is that, like, I guess it's on the move part of it specifically, like, there are days, you know, I personally struggle with depression and anxiety as well. And there are days that I don't work. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to lay on the couch all day. Mm -hmm. And some, that's self-care. That's self-care. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing, like, you have to, to tell yourself that, like, it's so easy, especially when you have depressive thoughts and whatnot, that it's like, Oh, I didn't do anything today. I just laid on the couch and watched mm -hmm. Netflix or whatever. But then if you really think about it and, and change that mindset to, you know what? I laid on the couch today and watched Netflix, but look at everything else I did this week. I deserved mm -hmm. that two hours of yes. nothing. Gratitude, celebrating wins is a huge thing. And I have to do that too, because I am the type of person that will just see all the things that need to be done and that I need to be worrying about and not celebrate my wins. This actually happened to me around releasing my latest single, London. I got my very first radio play ever, and it was this DJ in the Netherlands who found me from an article. It wasn't even something I pitched to. And he loved the song, and he sent a video of himself playing it on the radio, and I was in between like Ramstein and like some other awesome metal artist, and I was and I was so excited about it, but I was so stressed about, you know, not feeling like I'd been pushing London hard enough that I didn't even recognize that it was my first time being on the radio until like a week later when I was like, oh shit, that was my first time being on the radio. And I didn't even celebrate that moment because I was so caught up in like worrying and being anxious that like I didn't give that the amount of good energy it should have had. And, you know, that's a daily, it's a daily struggle. It's a yeah. struggle for me. Yeah, absolutely. Because I get anxious and depressing and, you know, sometimes taking a Wednesday off and doing nothing is exactly what I need. Sometimes not posting on Instagram is what exactly what I need, even if it's going to mess up the algorithm. Like, sometimes you just really can't care. 
Yeah, I I 100% agree. agree. And something I've started doing probably about a year ago, maybe a little longer, but um, I'm a stickler that I write out to-do lists all the time, especially at work. But then, you know, because of the anxiety, I start looking at it and I'm like, oh, I have too much shit to do. Like, look at this list. I don't, you know, all of a sudden I don't know how to prioritize it, whatever. So what I've started doing is I'll write out that to-do list and then I put it like underneath my laptop or whatever. And I take out a different piece of paper and it's my, here's what I did list. Because even if I don't get to everything on that to-do list, I still did these other things. I like that. I'm going to add that into my schedule. I am the same way. I have my to-do list on my phone is like 40 things long at a time. It's impossible and it's so stressful and I will freeze and be so unproductive because I won't know where to start. And um, my boyfriend actually just implemented something for me a few weeks ago that has been helping tremendously, but he got me a whiteboard and he looks he is also my manager but he looks at my to-do list and he picks like with me like the top 10 priority things and it's a mixture of things that are going to take me a lot of time and effort and some things that are just like low-hanging fruit i can cross off because because of that competition thing i love lists i love being able to cross something off like oh so good and so we put like 10 things on this board Sometimes when I get the pen, the board turns into those 40 things, though, and I have to start erasing them because I'm like, oh, also this and this and this, but trying to keep it around 10 things. And I am not allowed to look at the big list until I finish those 10 things. And if I finish them before the end of the week, I can add more. But it helps me to be like, this is the only place to start is one of these things. And sometimes when I don't have a lot of mental capacity, I'll pick the smallest thing and Sometimes when I have a lot of time, I'll pick the biggest thing, but it's really helping with the freeze because it at least gives me a place to start because I'm a freezer. Yeah. No, I, I do that exact same thing. Like my day job, I literally have like a list of, so I do marketing and I've got like a list of 20 different e-blasts that we're trying to work on getting our content together for and all that but i've also got these marketing books that i'm designing and this other you know social media for the company and everything and there are times that i sit there and i just stare at my computer and i'm like what the fuck mm -hmm. can i do like i have too many options what one thing can i just grab yeah. and just do yeah and it's hard when it's all important like i think i struggle with that as an independent artist and with how many things need to be taken care of. Like I getting things ready for music videos that are going to be shot is equally as important as getting my social media content ready is equally as important as making sure the next single's content is ready and uploaded to the distributor and that I filled out all the proper submission forms and that I've made all the marketing drivers and that I've, you know, I want to get into syncs. Like if, if I don't find, you know, the, the right people to contact like that's not happening and i gotta book shows and i've gotta like it's so many things that feel like priority that it's it's just it's tough prioritizing is really hard yeah prioritizing yeah. and time management i'm working on both of those things time management i i'm a i like to sleep a lot i really like sleeping <laughs> and i'm naturally a night owl but I am trying not to be. I've been getting up every morning. This is my new routine. The past two weeks at 7 a.m., 
which is so early for me. And I've been doing only things for myself until 11 o'clock, which is may sound like a really long time, but to balance out the amount of mental stress and output that I have, because like my job is giving myself, like that's literally my job is giving my energy to the world in a million different ways. And I have to have a few hours a day of giving to myself so that I can do that effectively. And so from seven to 11 is when I do the things like journal, meditate, exercise, practice guitar and piano, like just the stuff that feeds my soul to set my day up for a good day. And then from 11 to six, I'm trying to like cut off at six because I will just keep working, I'm a workaholic. And so I'm trying this new schedule and I was like, this past year has been probably my biggest, just like depressed, I guess most time I've struggled with depression. I don't think it has shit to do with the pandemic other than the fact that it like delayed me a bit with like what I wanted to be doing. But I just, you know, it's just the stuff that happened in my personal life and recovering from big life shifts. And I, um, you know, I said I let all out of my habits go and was waking up sad a lot and just like letting myself wallow and getting in freeze mode. But bringing this routine back and being a little bit more militant with myself and being like, all right, 7 a.m., you're going to just do stuff for yourself. In like one week of actually sticking to that, I probably had my depression reduced by like 70% which was massive. And like, I was having way less crying meltdowns. Like I felt like I could handle things more effectively. Like I felt more nourished and able to show up with not just an empty well. Cause I think I just kept showing up every day with like, just already coming from a place of being, feeling defeated and drained. And yeah. who's gonna work yeah. effectively like that? Nobody, and nobody was gonna fix it for me. So it lasted for way longer than it should, like probably a year and I know better. I know better. And I think that's one of my points. Like you can know everything in the world and like reach new heights of self-care and also have a year of not doing it and being shitty. And that doesn't mean you're shitty at it. Like you can always get back in. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think for most people that are hopefully still listening to this and, and taking things in, um, you know, I think that's an important thing is like there is absolutely still time so like if you have to set everything else aside so that you can make yourself a priority for a little while that absolutely needs to happen um yeah. i mean honestly if we're being fully transparent about it like you need to be a priority of yourself always but <laughs> it's so easy for especially like people like me that are very empathetic people like yeah. I, I'm so much on is everybody else taken care of and I forget to look at myself a lot of times um, and then by the time I do you know it's 2 a.m. and I'm sitting at home going what the fuck am I doing like, what if I you know where why didn't I go out this weekend and just go to a show or you know I did nothing for myself um, it, like I said it's okay to say hey everyone else I still want to help you I still want to do these things but from X time to X time I am untouchable because I have to do this for me 
for me. Mm-hmm. That's that's definitely a hard thing as a recovering people pleaser myself, as I would never turn friends down. I would never turn anything down because I didn't want to disappoint anybody or and now I'm definitely trying to not be that way and just be like, no, I need this night for myself or uh, and not lie about it and make an excuse, but to actually just say, I'm just not up to that tonight and like set those boundaries. A lot of us don't have great boundaries with ourselves. And then that, then that, you know, manifests in not having great boundaries with others. Um, but I, that's like something I really work on is building boundaries with myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I've, I've said too, like for boundaries, especially it's a scary word for a lot of people because they don't want to upset other people. But here's my two cents on boundaries, and I'm sure there's people out there that will disagree with me, but if someone gets upset because you set a reasonable boundary for yourself, it's because that person was taking advantage of you, and you don't need that person yeah. doing that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I just recently kind of lost a friend about setting a boundary, and it was kind of a really ridiculous freak out and my instinct was to apologize and to try to fix it and then I was like you know what this friend has really been draining my energy lately I don't look forward to hanging out with them I'm stressed about it I the reason they were mad at me is ridiculous and like is I can see you know having been to so much therapy and analyzed and obsessed with psychology and analyzing people a lot I'm like I see why they feel that way but I also know they don't do anything to help themselves. And so this problem is going to continue occurring. And I think it's time to let this person go because in my life, I've definitely held on to people a lot longer than I should have when they have continually shown me who they are. And I always choose to see the good in people always want to, cause I can like everyone has good and I can always be like, okay, this is why they're acting this way. But I see at the heart of who they are, like, you know, the great person there. And I know that's just from past experiences. Like, you know, you know, as an empath, you can feel people's energy. You can feel what they really are and you can feel their fog around them. And, but it's, you know, that can be so dangerous for having people around you that are not feeding that high vibration. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And it's funny that you say that you can feel people's vibes and stuff because I I have a couple friends that absolutely fucking hate when I say that because as an empath I really do feel like I I will meet somebody for the very first time and I'm like mm, something's off I don't like it you know yep. like there's something going on here and like you You're know in the first like five seconds like are yeah. you are you type of, you can literally like be in a group of people and be like yes no 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 yes 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 like absolutely. I feel people's like feelings and it drives my boyfriend a little crazy because sometimes I'll know what he's thinking and feeling before he even does. And so like, I'll just be like, Hey, what's wrong? And he'll be like, nothing's wrong. And I'm like, or when like people, like, he'll be like, I'm fine. And I'm like, I can, I know you're not though. Like I can feel it. I can tell you're not. And sometimes that makes me, I think really annoying, but <laughs> I'm trying to work on just like letting people have their emotional space if they don't feel like sharing with me. But like, it also drives me nuts when I can, I can feel it. And I'm like, just tell me, just talk to me. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely the same way. I, oh man, like two or three months ago, 
there's a friend of mine that I hadn't been around in person for quite a while, but we talk, you know, almost every day via text and whatnot. And I, I just shot her a text. I was like, Hey, what's going on? And she's like, nothing. What are you talking about? I was like, mm, your energy's off. Like something's up. And she's like, you haven't even fucking been around me. How do you know? And I'm like, it, I'm just telling you something's going on. And she's like, well, you know, this is what's going on at work. I'm stressed about this. You know, this is going on with my kid. Like, okay. Like I, I knew something was there. You just have to talk about it. Yeah. My boyfriend and I, before he moved here, have a very insanely telepathic connection like that. He's like that too. And like, I literally remember like sometimes where something would happen and I would be upset and I would just get a text like, Hey, are you all right? And I'd be like, what? Like, why do you that? Or like, I would call him like in the middle of a moment where he'd be like, wow, needed that call. And I'm like, I love that though. Like I, but I think that's like, you know, those of us who've been through stuff and tapped into that deeper connection. Cause I think everything is connected and we feel, we do feel energy. And I think anyone can be open to that if they just start to open themselves up to, to feeling it. But it's, it can be as, as much of a gift as being an empath and feeling other people's energy is. It can also be really hard. And I was actually talking to a fan the other day about this because he, I posted something about feeling other people's energy and he was like yeah I think this is like a huge problem for me like I get anxious when I feel like other people stress and I'm like yeah like here's some books to read like here's some things to try because it's it's hard to um feel other people's negative emotions and stress and not try to take it on and not want to help fix it yeah yeah no it's insane and there's times where like I've even told friends, you know, like I talk about my social battery, right? Like I just don't have anything left in my social battery. And they're like, but you haven't been out, you know, you haven't been hanging out with anybody, blah, blah. I'm like, you're right, but I've been at work. It's been really negative there. Like I've just been drained from absorbing all this negative shit from everybody else. I need a minute to just let all that out, you know? And that's where I think, I think a lot of empaths do get more into the spirituality and like the nature side of life because mm -hmm. like there's nothing more freeing for me than getting out and like walking a trail or you know sitting by a creek or a river or whatever and just like letting everything be it's like that's where as an empath i feel like i can just shed everything that i've absorbed and mm -hmm. reset everything absolutely nature is incredibly healing this is my first year having a garden and getting to go like check in the garden and like take care of it every morning has been so good for me and my mental health yeah. it's it's nature uh, yeah very very healing love me yeah. some dirt <laughs> especially growing my own food <laughs> yeah absolutely cool. But yeah, social battery is the thing. And, you know, I even feel it when I play my own shows. Like I told you, like the day after a show, I take the day off. Like that's just what I do. Cause I've met a lot of people. I've given all my energy on stage. I had the preparation of it and stayed up late. And I know my body's gonna hurt. And I know my battery is gonna be completely dead, happy, but dead. So days after shows, or veg days. Yeah, absolutely. So I think 
one of the questions I want to do as we segue to the end, I think you bring in the music back up is a, a good partial segue. Uh, but something I've started asking people a lot more intentionally um, is the, it's so fucking cliche, but I think it's such a powerful question, um, is when you look back at your life, especially with your you know plane crash and the traumatic event there and then losing your voice and and things like that when you look back at your life and and kind of analyze it and say okay who did a sorry you 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 broke up you hear me you broke you broke um repeat that am i back who did i wake yes okay so okay so when you when you look back at you know the the traumatic events of your life and kind of analyze it when you think about the person that you needed at those moments what does that person look like and then this is a really i've only asked this this way like twice but do you feel like the person that you are now is the person that you would have wanted in those moments? Great question. It's a really great question. Um, yeah, I do. I do actually think that I have become the person that I have needed in those moments. Um, I think more than anything in all those moments, I just needed someone to listen and just be there and not try to change it and just I mean my best friend is very much that for me like I couldn't have gotten through I think a lot of the things I've been through without her but she was just that place that I could just call and say whatever I was thinking and invent about it and um and she just listens and she doesn't try to give me too much advice or I mean maybe I would be a little annoying and I'm more like that probably than she is but she's what I need um honestly like she just listens and she gives me some advice but it's good advice but she doesn't like try to just be like oh this is what you need to do like she just sits in the suck with me and I think that having someone that can sit in the suck with you without trying to change it is what you need in those moments because like we've said there's not really changing it immediately and i think just having someone to be there with you to not just be alone is is what i've always needed in those moments like even when i lost my voice and my record deal like all of that like everyone else's first instinct was to take me out distract me make me happy like take me to the movies, take me this. And I didn't want to do any of that shit. Like, I just wanted to like be upset. Like I didn't want to be happy. I wanted to watch TV. I wanted to eat donuts. I wanted to do that. And so that like, you know, I think actually asking people what they want to, and what they need is the person that you need because just giving people as sweet and wonderful as it is, as it is to try to be there for people and help them think asking people what they need and you know just being able to be that is enough and I really learned more so how to be that 
when I did lose my voice because I had I couldn't talk and I had no choice but to just be there for people and I learned how to be a better listener and not always be the one that's rambling and <laughs> trying to help so a good listener yeah no I I totally agree and it, it's funny you you mentioned the you know asking people what they want because like that's something I started doing a few years ago like when a friend will hit me up and they're like hey man I you got a minute I need something you know to bounce something off of your you know whatever I'm like cool and I'll let them get it out and I go okay so here's what I'm gonna say do you want someone to help fix it or did you just need to bitch about it because I can do either I just need mm -hmm. to know so that we're not you know I'm not wasting my time trying to fix it when that's not what you needed or, or wanted but I also don't want it to be like, oh, well, he didn't mm -hmm. even care. He just let me bitch about it. Like, cool. Yes. We've got it out there. Which thing do you need? Because I can give you either. That's great advice. Yeah. That's uh, fantastic advice. I think, too, I, I've learned as the person with the problem to be able to say on the front end, I just need to vent about this. Like, I just need someone to listen to me. Like, ready to sit in the sack with me. This is what's going on. Like, don't, I don't need you to try to fix it. Or, um, you know, since my boyfriend is all, my boyfriend and my manager, like sometimes when there's a work issue, I need him to fix it. And sometimes I just need him to listen to me complain. And I'll say, I need boyfriend Derek, or I need manager Derek. Like, the, yeah. that's who I need to listen to this problem. And, just being able to better vocalize what I need on the front end. I mean, sometimes it's not always possible. Sometimes we don't even know what the hell we need, but communication, communication, communication. <laughs> it, it's so huge. And I, I think you're right. I think on the front end, a lot of times we don't know what we need. And that's why I usually wait and ask, like, you know, do you need advice or just a bitch? Because I've been in that situation too, where like I'll let something out and they're like, okay, cool. Here's my idea. And I'm like, mm. I'm actually good. I just needed to vocalize it. Like, you know, that you come to that realization. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, communication is the absolute most important thing when it comes to mental health, like taking care of yourself, but the way that you yeah. can take care of yourself is through communication. Um, so now the segue over to the music side, Absolutely. because this is still ultimately you know about you as a musician and everything um for anyone that has made it in this deep uh <laughs> where can they find you like what's what's the best what's the best way to interact with you like where can they find your music what's what is you <laughs> yeah well i just started releasing this long visual album that i've spent this last 10 years making so um if i have my choice i would send you to youtube first to watch the um full experience the videos and the music it's just anastasia elliott um two l's one t and uh spotify i mean anywhere there's music anastasia elliott and instagram and next week it will be TikTok as well and i'm actually jazzed about everything i'm making for TikTok. so come on over and see me there um but you know it, anywhere i'm facebook like uh twitter too we do it all and i love talking to 
people. So slide into those DMs. And hopefully lots of live shows coming up. Uh, working on booking, uh, booking a bunch across the country right now. So yeah, keep on keep on the social channels. And my website is AnastasiaElliott.com and that's kind of the hub for a lot of stuff and the purple sessions is on all podcasting platforms and also youtube so yeah awesome. that's me in a nutshell <laughs> awesome i appreciate your time so much Anastasia. And it's a lot of fun really <laughs> yeah and that that's one of the things you know i appreciate like, your time yeah one of the things you know like for me i think you hit me up after I think it was the first time I interviewed Matt uh, Minerva for those that are listening to this. So like that's yeah. kind of where my introduction to you came yeah. in as far as like an artist and everything. Um, and we'll definitely do, you know, the, the standard music uh, podcast as well. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of digging into your story, I was just taken back because I didn't realize, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So like, when I first started like kind of researching you and checking out the music and stuff, I'm like, okay, this is all pretty cool and whatnot. And then, like you said, I found like the plane crash story and stuff like that. And I'm like, holy shit, like talk about somebody that's been through it. Like, this is a great opportunity to get some exposure out there for that. Yeah, we've been through it. Anything you're going there, you come to me. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's everything I think for this episode. Um, like I said, this will actually be going. Oh, I have to say, but I can't forget. How could I not shout this out? I can't forget. Um, yeah, when you join any of my communities and you know my newsletter, I have started. You know, I call my fans the Purple Cult, and that's our hashtag. And I'm about to have shirts for all of you lovely people, but. Um, that is kind of where I'm housing everything that's like, you know, the whole core of my brand is helping people to be more creative and mentally well and just live their best lives. So that is my community. So come and join the Purple Cult. So, all right, I'm done talking. You can do your exit. <laughs> no, no, you're totally fine. That'll actually help because I'll obviously uh, hashtag this when we post about it and everything. Uh, this will be going live uh, this coming Monday. So... We'll get it all taken care of from there, and then I'll get you all the assets and everything from from that. I'm looking forward to more conversations in the future. Good. Yes, I love when people have thoughtful questions, and it's not just like you know the same question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I definitely try. So, yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. And that was my conversation with Anastasia Elliott. Um, again, huge shout out to her for being accommodating. Uh, again, we had to reschedule a couple times because each of us got sick. Um, and, you know, shit happens. But, um, you know, just a big thank you to her for using her voice, being transparent, um, talking about the tragedies that she has experienced and um, the, the after effects of it, you know, the, the PTSD of a plane crash and the, uh, the mental injury from losing your voice for 75 days. I mean, uh, 
you know that's especially as a singer but just as a person in general most of us can't go you know a couple hours without talking unless we're asleep so for the you know for someone that does rely on their voice but also has so much to say and such a um impactful story to not be able to use your voice for 75 days is is an incredible thing um and i think for a lot of people it's it's kind of an unfathomable thing um but you know again she's been able to realize some of her potential and opportunity with this and you know does some incredible work and speaking events and things like that and you know is seeing a lot of people that resonate with parts of her story and that can see how these things that affected her can translate into their own lives and be modified and um in their coping mechanisms and it's just a really really powerful thing um that you know hopefully more people start to use their stories for positive uh interaction um be sure to go check out her music obviously but also check out the purple sessions um it is a podcast that she just recently started and she's had some really cool guests on already and is getting you know more and more uh, to come into that as well, which is this mental health podcast slash self-help and um, kind of like a triage type of, of podcast where, you know, she's talking to these people about the events of their lives and the effects of it on their mental health and the coping mechanisms and tools that they used so you know people can try these things and as we talked about add them to their toolkits uh their mental health toolkits because while we may never be able to truly fix our mental health we can definitely repair it um and you know make things operational and um you know it's a really really cool thing that she's working on doing there so huge shout out to her again uh as always guys i appreciate everything you do for me um be sure to go over to the website check out what we've got going on there uh it'd be really cool if you picked up some merch i am working on some new designs um i had a designer lined up for some stuff and since then that has kind of fallen through they ghosted me and uh you know Things happen. It is what it is. Uh, If anyone is still listening to this, though, and is a graphic designer, illustrator, whatever you, you know, term you prefer, but if you do any sort of merchandise design, um, primarily like graphic tees, things like that, uh, hit me up if you'd like to potentially collaborate and we can see what we can work out. So uh, that would be really dope. That's everything for this episode, guys. I do have some super cool guests coming up very, very soon as well. Um, And we're going to talk about some really important and powerful stuff. So be sure that you like, subscribe, and share this podcast um, so that we can try to make an impact. You know, that's the, the whole goal is to get people to 
point where they're comfortable being honest about their mental health and realization that you're not alone. Um, no matter how dark it may seem, no matter how tragic the events are that have happened in your life, um, and not to downplay anybody's traumas or experiences, but you're not alone. There are others that have experienced the same, if not similar things, and um, there's definitely potential for healing and hope. Remember, guys, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and you make the scene.